the pious Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. When they, were heard, when they heard this sound, the crowd gathered. They were mystified because everyone heard them speaking in their native languages. They, heard, they were surprised and amazed, saying, Look, aren't all the people who are speaking Gal Galileans, one, every one of them? How then each... Can each of, of us hear them in our own languages? People from all over the world, all over the world, hear them declaring the mighty words of God in, in our own languages. Peter stood, on, stood with the other 11 apostles. He raised his voice and declared, This is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young will see visions. Your elders will dream dreams. I will cause wonders to occur in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. And everyone who calls on the name of, on the, name of the Lord will be saved. Follow Israelites, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, in accordance with God's established plan and foreknowledge, was betrayed. You, with the help of wicked men, had Jesus killed by nailing him to a cross. God raised him up. God freed him from death's dreadful grip, since it was impossible for death to hang on to him. Change your hearts and lives. Each of you must be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The believers devoted themselves to the apostles, teaching to the community to their shared meals and their prayers. A sense of awe came over everyone. God performed many wonders and signs through the property and possessions and distribute of the proceeds to everyone who needed them. Every day they met together in the temple and ate their homes and ate in their homes. They shared food with um, gladness and simplicity. They praised God and, and demonstrated God's goodness to everyone. The Lord added daily to the community those who were being saved the end. I love um, Gracie's ending there. It, you know, it's always struck me when the, when the first writers of the church and the church history set out to describe the kind of community that was at play, they said that we are like a family. And if you have a need, um, I'll put up my house for sale. And the profits from said house for sale is going to go to cover the need that you have. Like, what a beautiful 
an irrational and crazy and beautiful dream that is. Like that is, um, it's compelling, it's vibrant, it's alive, and that's not the point of this time, but I just wanted to point that out. My name is Matt Moberg. I'll be uh, providing sermonic content during this portion of the program. I'm not gonna reread the text because you just done did so. But um, regardless of what you get out of here, and, and let me just name out front that it might be a, um, a tangled mess because I was up at 6.30 this morning doing pastoral care as I went out and blessed Alex Fellerman's golf game and just tried to teach him a few different things. I shot a 92, not a big deal. But regardless of what you get out of this space, the number one hope that we carry into it is that when you leave this room and you head back into your homes and you go into your Mondays tomorrow, that you would know once again, that who you are is more important than what you do, even if what you do gets more attention than who you are. That your person is prioritized over your productivity. That your sense of self is prioritized over the things that come from you. It's essential that we rem remember that. Christian, is there like a, did Christian leave? Did I say something wrong? I'm getting a little white noise back here. It's gonna drive you too? Okay. That's good to know. Uh, today is Pentecost, and Pentecost is, well, it means the 50th day after Easter, the 50th day after Passover. Literally, Pentecost means 50th. It's not some like cryptic creative title. It just means 50th. It's the arrival of the Spirit, but the name means 50th. 50 is, it's, it's straightforward. It's like the person who named Fireplace or car seat or um, horseback riding, that sort of thing. There's nothing that is cryptic, and I think we often get this confused because we tie Pentecost to Pentecostalism, and if you're outside of that particular circle, you're not going to understand what is going on inside of this story. That's not true. This is the mark of when the Spirit came to the church. This is the moment where after Christ died and then undied and was among the people again, Christ looked at his crew and he said, listen, I need you to stick around in the city because soon I will be gone. But when I am gone, if you go to the city and you wait in the room, the spirit will come again. The spirit will start this whole thing up again. Now, a lot of people, and I don't mean to open this can of worms, probably actually shouldn't at this late hour, but a lot of people would say that when Christ spoke about a coming back, when the text promised about a second coming of Christ, they were actually talking about the Pentecost, the body of Christ coming into formation with the enlivening of the Holy Spirit on this day. And so for Christians across the world, thousands of churches today, they read the text that you just took in because the celebration of the church being, um, if it's a car, this is the gas. If it's, if it's making a move, this is the fuel. This is the moment where the church is baptized into a new beginning. That's why we celebrate Pentecost. And yet for me, I do so with some cringe attached. Now, hear me out. My cringe is not around my kids wearing flame hats on their head on this particular moment. Um, that was lovely. I actually loved every moment of that. I hope you guys took that in for the gift of grace that it is. Be able to see kids up there who are so proud of and excited to participate in this moment that do you remember when you were like that? Do, do you remember when those moments were the moments for you? Like, that's a beautiful gift that Stephanie just brought with those kids up front just now. My cringe isn't attached to the kids. My cringe is, I think, I grew up in a Baptist church. And inside Baptist church, like, we didn't talk much about spiritual manifestations, let alone, like, tongues of fire or speaking in tongues. We didn't, we didn't talk about that. The spiritual manifestations was like, you, you didn't smoke that weed that weekend. 
spirit's with you. You didn't get with that girl this past weekend. You could have, but you didn't. Spirit's with you. That was kind of the extent. But when I started to read the scriptures for myself, and it wasn't just dictated me from the front, I, I started to read these stories, and I know they're supposed to be inspiring, but I felt like they were so, um, what's the word, frustrating. Because I had grown up in the church. I had heard about like tongues of fire. I had heard about people speaking in the like fluent in foreign languages. I had heard about these people's encounters with the spirit and yet I could not tell you about the same in my own story. And so it caused a cringe of sorts. Uh, it led me to ask the question, I guess, you know, when you read the text, there's the ending moment right there where the crowd that's at hand and they hear the noise coming out of the upper room, they hear the fluency of foreign language being seeking, spoken from the center, where they ask the question, well, some people go, they're drunk, pay them no mind, please move on with your business. And they're like, it's 9 a.m., we're not that aggressive. But other people are like, what does this actually mean? What, is, uh, what we just saw on full display what does it actually mean? What is it trying to say? See, what their early interpretations of the events in the upper room is that the, the signs that were coming down from the Spirit now arriving is that they were not the point, they were merely trying to point. These signs were trying to push you to see something else. They were not the point, but for me, for much of my life, I had seen the signs as the point. And so the question inevitably became, if the Spirit is present with me, where is the evidence of that? Is a prerequisite for the Spirit's presence the absence of rational thinking? Can I live with the Lord and logic at the same time? Do I need some kind of like climactic mountaintop moment where I can't explain it, but everything just faded and it was full of drama and pregnant with meaning? And I don't know if I can put my word on what it was, but I am forever. Do I need that? It's not the thing. It's not the thing. That's what it was. Okay, so it, uh, honestly, and I'm not trying to do this in any performative way, I think the question honestly weighed on me, if like I wasn't speaking in tongues, if I wasn't having this back and forth dialogue, banter with the Christ, if I wasn't having any kind of like manifestation of spirit in my story, was the spirit actually in my story? That was something that weighed heavily on me. And I ask you that question, is the spirit in my story? And before you cast your verdict, let me make it real clear. I was trying very hard to have the spirit in my story. Early days, I tried drugs, didn't get me really high enough. It wasn't actually the thing that would make me contact source like I thought that it would. Later on, later on it got into uh, the secret, the law of attraction, but like the parking spots never opened up. And so that wasn't exactly what I was missing. Then I moved from the Baptist church straitjacket that I was in into a more Pentecostal reality. And I thought that there I was surely one or two steps away from encountering the spirit the same way the folks at Pentecost once did. And I met with this pastor who took me to Starbucks and we, we, he laid out like the X's and O's of what it looks like to actually be baptized in the spirit. His words, not mine. And he said, this is the thing that will overwhelm your senses. It will, it will override your ability to do these. It will take over for you. There's a new, Jesus take the wheel, as Miranda Lambert once said. And so then he proceeded from that Starbucks-like area, the coffee table, to the parking lot where he put his hand on my chest and he said, all right, Matt, I'm going to, do you want to be baptized in the spirit? I said, I think I do. And he goes, then I need you to pray with me. And what you're going to experience right now is you're going to, his words, you're going to feel the spirit rising somewhere in the upper regions of your gut 
it's going to want to then move up through your chest and through your throat and then eventually through your mouth where you will hear the language of heaven being spoken out loud. And so I stood in that parking lot next to my car with this man's hand on my chest and I waited. And he kept asking me like, do you feel anything yet? And I kept telling him no. Do you feel anything yet? And again, I said like, not that I'm aware of. We sat in that parking lot, stood in that parking lot for about 30 to 45 minutes, and I can still tell you every line in his face that was so disappointed in how it was responding. Eventually, he kind of just wiped his hands and said, that's it then. I stuck around in the Pentecostal church a little bit longer, though, and I had another pastor who I thought, maybe I just had a wacky pastor in that realm, and I'll try again. Uh, this guy said, listen, if you stay up all night and you refuse to go to sleep until you speak or hear a word from God, that is how you're going to establish a connection with the divine, with source. That's how you're going to get this, this baptismal of the spirit to be less of a thing that is abstract and to be studied and more of a thing to be embodied and experienced. And so I did. I can tell you every detail of that night. I sat next to our fireplace in my parents' house next to the window and I waited. I kept my mouth shut, which is easier said than done for me personally. And I waited. And I waited. I prayed. I tried closing my eyes like extra tight, holding out my hands. I had the scripture open wide in front of me. There have been different moments where I've felt like spiritually defeated. There have been few moments that have rivaled what it was like to see that sun come up the next day without one word going down that night. And so it left me wondering, can the spirit be present in your life without the mountaintops beneath your feet? Can the spirit be present in your life? Do you need the spirit, the evidence to be the flames, to be the, the tongues, to be these mystical elements? Or is the spirit bigger than that? For so long, I've given into the lie that eventually Man, there's some wacky stories. I'm going to restrain myself right now. But eventually, I will get to this place where I'll be next to Moses standing on top of Sinai, but I am 36 years old and I have yet to step on that mountain. I've yet to have this moment where I've spoken fluently in tongues. I've yet to have this. I'm saying this out loud because I know that many of you have said this to me personally. Where you yourselves have wondered, like, is God active in my life? I have not experienced Acts 2 Christianity. Is God in my, when I sing ocean, spirit lead me, I don't actually feel like I'm being led. Is something wrong with me? Is the spirit active in my story if I'm not speaking in tongues, if I'm not having these manifestations, these visions, these elaborate dreams that are not consistent with rational thinking? Is the spirit, my answer is yes. And I want to tell you that though I've never spoken in tongues and though I've never stepped on Sinai, I have never been convinced more than I am right now that the Spirit is active in my story. And I've never been more convinced than I am right now that the Spirit is active in yours. And I want to spend a brief moment tonight telling you why. Pentecost, Acts 2, 1 through 21, it tells this elaborate story of what happened when the Spirit arrived in the church. But to understand the, the meaning of Pentecost, you really have to have some basic grasp on the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And so when you see things like the wind, the smoke, the fire, the sounds, that's supposed to bring you back to the top of Sinai where that wind and the smoke and the fire and the sounds, those were all experience. 
When you hear a number that is thrown out by Luke, like 120 were there to receive these experiences, you're supposed to be reminded of the priests who were required in the Jewish temple to administer the holy elements. All of this is loaded with meaning. But there's one moment in particular I want to point you to tonight, and it comes from Acts 2, where after the noise has been heard in the room and all of the multitudes are gathering in the center and the accusations are coming out saying, these folks are drunk, and they're saying, no, we are not, and all of a sudden they're dealing with the reality of they're speaking in our native tongue, and they were from Galilee, an uneducated place, a place where they wouldn't have known our native tongue. They say that they are perplexed, confused, bewildered. Multiple times, Luke goes out of his way in Acts chapter 2 to say that the people's response to the movement of the Spirit is one of confusion. Where have we heard this story before? The people gathered as one, hearing voices that reflect the many, all together for one task, and they're confused. Well, if you read any scholar on Acts chapter 2, in the day of Pentecost and the meaning inside of it, they would point you back to Genesis 11. Because the same word for perplexed, confused, bewildered that we see in Acts chapter 2 is the Hebrew equivalent that we see in the Tower of Babel. To understand Acts 2, you have to go to Genesis 11, so naturally I'm going to bring you first to Genesis 10. Patty, can you go to that slide for me? This is a boring slide, and so I'm not going to be laborious and walk you all through it, but this is what the rabbis in a post-exilic era, and stay with me because this matters, this is what they would call the table of nations. So they set out after coming home from exile, and they said, okay, how do we make sense of the people in the land? How do we make sense of where everybody went and how everybody went from the story of Noah, the flood, and life after it? And they came up with this chart right here. Now, this in and of itself is relatively boring. This is the sons of Noah, the descendants of Noah, the differences among them. And inside of it, it's not noted there, but in Genesis 10, it also says the locations. But understand, if you live in the moment, what's fascinating is not what happens in Genesis 10, but what happens in Genesis 11. Because in Genesis 10, as the rabbis are putting together this account, and they're saying, okay, so Noah's kids lived here. This is where they were. As they're writing all this out, and it's laborious content to go through, they recognize, why are they not still here? If they are, these are all Noah's kids, what caused them to spread throughout the land? And so from cultural stories passed down to them, Genesis 11 sets out to be the answer to that very question. Why did Noah's kids, why did the grandbabies of Noah go on in their own separate ways? Did they buy a cabin together? And there was a calendaring snafu, difference in home decor, some that hits close to home for some people. What is the reason why they scattered in their separate ways? When the rabbis got together and they asked one another and they considered the cultural stories they inherited and they asked the spirit what it was all about, they told the story of Genesis 11, the story of the Tower of Babel. Let me give you the Cliff Notes version. In this story, while Noah's babies are still together as one, they come together with one language, one culture, one sense of we're all in this together, you get me and I get you, and they set out on a project with one aim in mind, we're going to make our name great. That is not something that you do in the Jewish tradition. You don't make your own name great. You don't, you do, you don't lift yourself, you lift others. You don't live for the celebration of others, you live for celebrating others. 
That is your purpose. You are called to be a nation through which the benevolent God and the Spirit of God moves through your story and actually is edifying to all. And yet this group, Noah's babies and grandbabies and their grandbabies, they get together, so says the rabbis, and they start with one voice, one language, and one domination project. They decide that we're going to build a tower that gets to the sky, that reaches the throne of God. We're going to be like God. That is an echo of the Garden of Eden, where the snake says, you take from this tree and you bite from that fruit, you'll be like God. That temptation is always within us. But the Tower of Babel sets out with the people in this domination project where they start to grab some bricks and put them together, and they're so set on getting to the top when God finally says no. The rabbis say that when the people were building high, God looks down at what they're conjuring up and says, this is not what this is all about. This isn't the story that I set out for you to live. You read it on face value as it's presented to us in the scriptures. It almost comes across like God is insecure, like you're getting awfully close to my territory. But we are children of the enlightened. We know that God does not live in some sphere above the side. We live and move and have our being within God. And so you can't reach God, you are in God. It's the same way today where you talk about guns in schools and we say, well, it happened because we kicked God out of school. You can't kick out which, that which you are in. That's not how it works. So God is not insecure. But what's fascinating is they are scraping the tops of the sky and they're pushing upward. And God in response pushes back. God doesn't destroy the tower. God does destroy the uniformity. God does destroy the, the superiority project. God does destroy the oneness beneath that thinks that they can dominate all, the land, the lives within it, and even God itself. Every time diversity is deemed to be dangerous, every time there is a sense where we need everybody to be exactly the same, God pushes back on that. And so God pushes back according to the rabbis and says this building needs to stop right there. Doesn't tear down the tower, tears down the uniformity. And in response, if you read Genesis 11, it says they scatter out to the people, which means that, Patty, can you show the map that I drew up? This is really bad handwriting, but please bear with me. You have at the center of the world, according to the ancient Jewish people, you have Jerusalem. In the same way where as Americans, many times our maps are reflective of us at the center because that is where we live, the same is true for the ancient Israelites. They put themselves next to the center, right next to the sea, and all around them, as the rabbis tried to make sense of what they were entering into back in a post-exilic era, they said that up here to the north we have Q, the Japhethites. Over here to the east we have more Japhethites. Then if you go down a little bit, you got the Hamites, and then over here you got the Semites. This is the location of all these pieces, all scattered. God diffuses the uniformity and insists upon diversity, but it doesn't change our mind about what needs to be done. These people go back to their own particular tribes in their own particular places, and they just create new Babels. They create new towers. They start constructing new towers and, and domination projects in their own particular places. And so it goes on. And that's the story of the world right there. I mean, I'm not trying to bore you, but I do want to give you some kind of like background of what Pentecost is looking like and why scholars are always saying if you want to understand Acts 2, you got to go to Genesis 11. This is what is happening right there. The people went scattered out. 
They, they were no longer one in uniformity. They were no longer one in, in siblings. They, they're scattered. And throughout the years, if you read the scriptural account, this would attribute to why there are wars. This would attribute to why there is greed. This is attribute to why there is violence. This is what attribute to why there is racism. This would attribute to why there's one group that believes that they are superior to the other group. That's true in the Bible. That's true in our lives. You see it consistently from start to stop. That is always happening. But throughout the way, there are prophets along the way that says there's a better way. That how things are isn't how things need to always be. There will come a day, as one of the kids read up here, where the Spirit is not going to pour out on one particular flesh. It's going to reach all flesh. There will come a day where the walls of hostility will start to crumble down. There will come a day where everyone who believes the myth that we are not connected, that we are not family, that their differences make them dangerous, that will fall to the wayside real quick. That day that the prophets whispered about over the centuries was Pentecost. Josephus, the historian, talks about Pentecost and he says that it's, it's a really weird year that this particular Pentecost happened because in this one month of time, all of the Jewish holidays and festivals, not all of them, but much of the Jewish festivals and holidays coalesced into this one month which brought in people that had never been in the same space before. And so if you go to the map that's presented in Acts 2 and you have these multitudes that are speaking, they're updated in names and they're more specific at this point because the scattering continues to unfold. But all of the people that were sent out, all of the people that in the ruins of the Tower of Babel went out to start their own tribe with their own story with a new particular domination project, all of a sudden they are back in the city and there is something happening in an upper room. A wind breaks out, a fire starts to spark, a voice comes through. And it doesn't say that there is one language. There, to be clear, there already was a language that everybody understood. Everybody had some basic elementary understanding of Greek. That was accessible enough, but it was not enough for them to understand. They themselves need to be understood. And so the Spirit breaks through the first followers of Christ and speaks in the native tongues of all of these parties that are now back in time. All of Noah's kids are coming back home. What does this mean? Everybody that was sent out is now coming back home. What does it mean? That question that I have heard from sitting down with you at coffee, that question that you have asked when we've gone around, walks around Lake Harriet of, is the Spirit present in my life? My question would be, when the Spirit of God pours out, are people actually being pulled in? Are you growing more gentle as you grow older? Are you growing more compassionate? Are you starting to see less and less a them and us and more and more in us? What do you see from those that you don't line up with theologically? Those you don't line up with politically? Those who don't look like you, speak like you, whose stories are nothing like yours? When the Spirit pours out, are Noah's kids actually coming home in your story? If they are, the Spirit is alive in your life. The Spirit is active in your life. When Paul goes on to say that if you want to know what the fruits of the Spirit being active in your life is, everything that he names for the fruits of the Spirit, everything is relational. Nothing is some kind of mountaintop moment, episodic experience that's going to tickle you from head to toe and leave you with goosebumps. That's not what Paul says that the Spirit is all about. Paul says that it will manifest in the relationships that you have. Do you have relationships that reflect the party that is Pentecost, 
the good news. I like to run this test, and I, I'm just thinking of it now, but we do it once a year, something like that. Take out your phone right now. And look at the last 10 calls that you have made. Ugh. Phone calls, Christian. Do the people on that call list, do they look the same as you? Are they politically in line with you? Do they have an understanding of God that is congruent with yours? Can you see the Spirit's arrival in that call list? For most of us, we can't. Honestly, we, we just can't. We have grown apathetic over time, over the chasms that have been created, and we were born for community instead. One that transcends boundaries. One that brings peoples in and not insisting on others staying out. I just want you to see, and I know this is a, it can be thicker and more complicated, but I want you to see without going into the weeds that Pentecost is not this moment of mystical um, disregard for rational thinking in this set-apart thing that only the few are actually invited into. No, it's not. If you are experiencing moments of reconciliation, redemption, forgiveness, mercy, compassion, if you are bringing people in, the Spirit is active in your life. The evidence of the Spirit's role in your life is not your ability to um, robotically dictate dogma. It's are you actually embodying and expressing love? Are people growing warmer when they are around you? Um, I want to share you this story. We're in Pride Month right now, and our Sarah B is going to let you in. I'm both, I think, Sarah, what I think you do great in sharing us with us the glimpse of your story is you provide a glimpse into what it looks like when we continue to build our Tower of Babels and keep certain people out, and how restorative and hopeful it is when we actually turn and do the right thing, the Pentecost thing, and bring people in. Will you play that video, Patty? My name is Sarah Bacher. I'm a queer 30-year-old, and I grew up in a small church in a small town in central Minnesota. As a kid, my parents were not churchgoers. Uh, my dad wanted me to go, though, so my grandma's neighbors brought me to the local Baptist church every Sunday throughout my childhood years. I didn't particularly want to go. But as a teenager, I found joy and family and belonging at my church. I spent every moment I could in those buildings and with those people. When I was 18, a new pastor came and we would just have long conversations about our vision for the church. I would spend long Sunday afternoons at his house with his family for life group. They really were my family. It was at Bethel that I first started to figure out who I was. I was first medicated for depression there. I had my first bipolar episode, and I was sent to the hospital and kicked out of my dorm for suicidal ideation. My pastor from my childhood church was the first person I came out to while I was a sophomore in college. He claimed in his 40s that I was the first person who had ever come out to him, and he wasn't sure how to handle it. Uh, he told me that I could go to this Christian therapy that he had heard of that would help me be straight and not be gay. And I told him that was called conversion therapy and it wasn't a positive thing and I certainly wouldn't be going. In the end, we just decided that I would be celibate for life and that was the answer. After all, the sin wasn't being a homosexual, it was being a practicing homosexual. Fast forward a few years after graduating from college, I moved home and I started attending my childhood church again. I volunteered to lead Vacation Bible School that summer. 
As it turns out, one of my friends, Hannah, also volunteered to lead Vacation Bible School, and so we decided to do it together. A few weeks into the summer, one of the deacons discovered that I was gay, and he immediately called a meeting with the deacons and me. They confronted me, I was forced to come out to them, and I explained that I had already worked through this with our pastor and that it was settled. They didn't accept that answer and insisted on meeting with me nearly every week that summer to discuss my sexuality, my ability to lead in the church, and how much I could or could not work with children. One night in particular, I was abruptly told that I was no longer allowed to participate in Vacation Bible School and that I would not be allowed even in the church building during that week, despite spending my entire summer planning it. I was devastated, and I spent the night drinking until I literally could not function. My newly found best friend, Hannah, came to my rescue, and none of us knew the foreshadowing of that night as she held me as I sobbed. A month after Vacation Bible School, Hannah and I became roommates, and somehow the deacons then decided I was fine to lead children's events. And so I did, with Hannah, and so much more. For three years, I spent 20 hours a week on average at church on top of my full-time job. At one point, I was leading children's events, family events, adult Bible studies. I was on the trustee team. I remodeled the church and the parsonage. And I was selected to be on the search committee for a new pastor. The church was glad to take my service as long as I fairly regularly convinced the deacons that I would continue to remain celibate for life. One deacon in particular was very skeptical of me. He was constantly working behind the scenes to convince everyone in leadership that I wasn't fit to lead. I would be in a role for a few months and then I would be forced out with no explanation. Hannah and I lived together for three years and in the midst of it all, or maybe in spite of it all, we fell in love. Of course, our own internalized homophobia and our conservative upbringing brought its fair share of heartache and turmoil. Three years after we volunteered to lead Vacation Bible School together, we left the church. I left because of leadership differences, including being pushed out of all of my roles. And on Palm Sunday, 2018, I left my home church. I left the people who had watched me grow up and who had loved me all my life. I never returned and no one ever reached out. Hannah eventually came out to her parents and her dad, was more mad than I've ever seen him before or since. And he sat us down outside and he looked at me and he said, I feel like I've let my daughter go play in the street and she got hit by a car. And that was probably the most painful part of coming out to anyone, including my own parents, including, I mean, anyone else that I know. And the fact that he was a deacon and the vice chair of our church and my, I mean, he was like a spiritual mentor to me at the time. He was like a father figure to me before we ever came out, before we were ever together. He basically told me that I killed his daughter. And that was really hard. For a year, we didn't attend church. Hannah didn't sing or pick up her guitar or touch a keyboard. I spent nearly every Sunday in tears. Hannah spent countless days on the phone arguing with her parents. We got engaged in secret while we waited for acceptance from our family and friends. 
But we were together and we were free. We just felt like there was a piece of our life missing. My relationship with God through all of this was really rocky for a while. It kind of felt like when the church left that God left, that God and the church in my mind were one. And if they couldn't love me, then how could God love me? These people that I had grown up with, that had known me since I was five and loved me through so many heartaches, couldn't love me through this one. If they couldn't love me and I couldn't earn their love, how could I earn God's love? We found the table and attended for Easter, the year following leaving our childhood church. It wasn't the same, and to be honest, it's still not the same, but I can be my full self here. We got married here, and we found our church family here. That first Sunday, when I listened to Matt preach, I was brought to tears uh, when he said, no matter who you are or what you've done, who you love or what you've lost, where you've gone or the places that you've stayed, there will always be a seat here for you at the table because you are a beloved child of God and beloved, you belong. Thank you for honoring us with that story. I am so glad that you are here. <laughs> um, folks, this is the time where we do communion, and I just want to reiterate that no matter what church you came from, whether the table was open or closed, whether you were welcome to participate or not, this table is open. This table is set for you exactly as you are, no exceptions. As we uh, remind, were reminded by uh, Matt's sermon tonight, um, Pentecost and the communion table, it's about children coming home. And I'm just uh, so grateful for your presence here tonight. Um, so this is the part of the service where we remind ourselves, where we remember ourselves to one another. And we come together and remember that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered everybody around a table. And he said that this is my body, it's broken for you. He poured wine into the glass, he gave thanks. He said, this is my blood, it's shed for you. Take and eat, and when you do this, remember me. And so that is what we do. So if you have your elements that you got from the back or you're grabbing one now, you can peel back that first layer and take the wafer. Hear these words, this is the body of Christ, and it's broken for you. You can peel back the second layer and receive these words, this is the blood of Christ shed for you. Every time we do this together, it is meaningful to me. It is a rhythm that centers my life, my, my coming and my going, because we do it together. Will you stand with me and together we will pray the prayer Jesus taught his disciples to pray, saying, Our God, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.
people in the space of Jerusalem responded to the events of the Spirit and they asked, what do you mean? What does any of this have to do with my life? Where is this trying to point me? The message is clear and it's the one we give every Sunday night. And so if you are with us, will you please close your eyes, hold out your hands and receive this Pentecost promise. Friends, no matter who you are or what you've done, who you love or what you've lost, where you've gone or the places that you've stayed, know that there will always be a seat here for you because you are beloved child of God and beloved you belong. Go in peace. We'll see you next Sunday.